the Leah McSweeney Show. Hi, Dr. Eamon. Pleasure to meet you. I'm a huge fan. I also, um, and I'm just going to get right into it because we're recording. I had my brain scanned by you guys maybe um, a year and a half ago. So I'm super grateful. It was a game changer for me. And I think that you, I mean, obviously you are like, you know, the, one of the most famous psychiatrists um, out there, but you have a different approach than a lot of other psychiatrists. And I'm just wondering, like, is it because you've been doing it for so long or like what made you, you know, you just talk about a lot of things that a lot of other psychiatrists don't. It's true. And I have no idea why all of us should be doing the same thing, which right. is looking at the brain. I mean, just think of how insane yeah. it is not to look at the brain when you're dealing with people who have cognitive issues or emotional issues or behavioral issues. Mm. And if you don't look, you don't know. Right. And, and once you look and tell me if this was your experience, yeah. you begin to fall in love with your brain <laughs> and then you act better toward it. Yeah, I'm still like, I get a little annoyed with my brain sometimes, but <laughs> that's a whole other thing. But like, I am, I am in such a better um, place now than I was um, when I came to get my brain scan. I also did something, um, well, it's also, it's very validating. And I think that like, sometimes we just need to know, okay, I'm not imagining like these things that are going on like it's showing that this part of my brain is very busy and that's why i'm always like you know having racing thoughts or you know i was also you guys um confirmed to me that i really don't have add like i actually have like the opposite of add i'm very focused and i always knew that even though i had a lot of psychiatrists trying to prescribe me um add medicine and adderall and ritalin and you know all of the above um i've honestly been on probably like every not every single psych medication but pretty much because a, i mean psychiatrists do do that right they prescribe until they try to find something that works for you and it's kind of like the wild wild west which is what i had an addiction psychiatrist tell me a very long time ago i wish that someone had told me and you talk about this a lot how much exercise helps your brain is perfect for exercise because exercise boosts serotonin levels in your brain yeah. and you have a beautiful brain, yeah. but you have a busy brain and it's an anxious brain and it's a worried brain. And when you exercise, people think you get an endorphin rush. And that's actually not accurate. It's more you get a boost in serotonin. And so when people use exercise to balance their brains and then they get hurt mm. and they can't do it, they then get depressed. And so I have to find ways to increase their serotonin. And I like to do it in natural ways. 
exercise, 5-HTP, saffron, um, sunlight, vitamin D, all of those things can boost serotonin. I have my sad lamp. Oh, here it is. It's over here. I don't need it right now, though. Why is it turning on? Um, I use it in the morning. <laughs> now it won't go. <laughs> but, uh, you know, because I live in New York City and I'm not getting a lot of sunlight right now, you know, and it's a real thing. Um, today I worked out for the first time in like a month, which is not good. I should be working out every single day. And during the workout and afterwards, I was like, this feels better than an orgasm. This feels like my entire brain and body and soul is alive again like it felt that extreme it felt like I was like being woken up I'm like you know and I feel you know I'm in recovery and I'm making a general statement but a lot of a lot of people that you know stop using you know alcohol or drugs or both and get in recovery some of them turn into like marathon runners some of them turn into like super they become addicted to like you know different sports and stuff and I don't really think that it's the addictive personality. I think it's just because our brains are busy and anxious and it feels, you know, it feels extra good when, when we work out because of our addict brains, which I want to talk to you about. Um, cause people, some people say it's like nature and nurture. And like, I don't know how much you do talk about addiction and things like that, but do you think that it's like a genetic disorder or do you think that it's from trauma that people are trying to medicate or like, what is your take on that? Well, I think genes load the gun, mm. but it's what happens to us and it's our decisions that mm -hmm. pull the trigger. So I, I actually became a psychiatrist because when I was in medical school, someone I loved tried to kill herself mm -hmm. and I took her to see a wonderful psychiatrist. And I came to realize if he helped her, it wouldn't just help her. It would help me. It would help um, her children, her grandchildren, as they would be shaped by someone who was happier and more stable. So I fell in love with psychiatry. And it turned out she grew up in a pretty abusive alcoholic home. And um, there's a whole research around children and grandchildren of alcoholics a higher incidence of depression, anxiety, OCD, ADD. Um, but that trauma left a lasting imprint on her brain. And if you have it in your family, I, I, we don't think about genes in the way I think is the most helpful. If you have stuff in your family, like I have heart disease and obesity in my family, but I don't have heart disease and I'm not obese. Why? I'm on a heart disease, obesity prevention program every day of my life. If you have an addiction in your family from an early age, somebody should have said, we have this in our family. Right. And don't do it. So when I talk to her kids later, I'm like, you have alcoholism in your family. If you never drink, you're never going to have a problem. But if you drink, it's like playing Russian roulette and it might steal your life. And so I, I, I adopted my two nieces whose both parents were addicts and just couldn't be stable for them. And 
I'm so clear with them. And one of them's a freshman at UCLA. It's like, if you do the things your parents did, it might steal your life. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm super proud of them. But I think we need to do a better job of educating people about genetic risks yeah. and then not giving into them, right? Because some people go, oh, well, I'm obese because it's in my family. And I'm like, no, it's in your behavior. Your family makes you more vulnerable to it. Yeah. Um, so that people can just be more empowered. Absolutely. I mean, I'm really, um, you know, honest with my daughter who's 16 and a half about, and and she knows, and she, and I have a long family history of um, alcoholism. And luckily, like my whole family's sober pretty much, except my dad. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen. Love you, dad. But, um, you know, I'm very honest with her. And, uh, you know, I'm like this, you could have the, the gene. I don't know you know, um, and you could go through a lot of pain or you could try to avoid that by not drinking. <laughs> um, but- and, and I think 10 years from now, maybe 15, but it's soon that, you know, when you see somebody who's smoking, mm. you just look at them and go, really? Yeah. It's like, seriously, <laughs> like you're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's going to happen with alcohol. I say the same thing. I think it's going to be taboo, just like smoking cigarettes, even though, I mean, I now quit and I'm using like nicotine replacement. Um, but, you know, one thing at a time. Um, walking down the street, seeing people smoke. Yes. It's like, what are you doing? You know, I try not to be judgmental, but it is, you know, when you're smoking a cigarette, you're going to give yourself lung cancer. Like it, that's what's going to happen eventually. I think that it's going to be taboo as well for alcohol because Gen Z, so much of Gen Z, it's the studies have shown that they're very sober curious and they're like more into like mushrooms and weed, which I still think weed is causing kids to like be schizophrenic and stuff. But, and I'm not like sold on the whole, you know, um, cannabis like lifestyle. I personally, I can't smoke pot. It gives me panic attacks, but I just, I don't think that it's that healthy for you to be doing. Oh, and I don't think mushrooms are either. I mm-hmm. think, you know, I've been at this long enough. So I've seen Benzo's or Mommy's Little Helper turn into a disaster. Oh, yeah. um, alcohol's a health food. That's a lie. Opiates, you know, it used to be pain is the fifth vital sign, you know, brought to you by Purdue Pharmaceuticals and the opiate epidemic. And then marijuana is innocuous. It clearly isn't. It increases the risk of psychosis 450%. Teenagers who use have an increased incidence of anxiety, depression, and suicide in their 20s. Um, it's not innocuous. And, and now everybody's curious about mushrooms. And, and it starts like this. It's an effective treatment for treatment-resistant PTSD in veterans. Well, who wouldn't want a treatment that's effective for post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans? It starts with that. But then all of a sudden, you see their adolescent mushroom parties. And when the idea of a drug dangerousness goes down, its use goes 
up. Mm. And I'm like, there's so many other ways to treat PTSD. And, you know, perhaps if I've done six or seven of the things I know to do and it's not working, well, let's try mushrooms. But, you know, there's so few studies on so few people that for everybody to go, hey, you know, let's do this recreationally. I'm very concerned. I don't know if you saw the Alaskan airline pilot who'd done mushrooms the day before and tried to take down a plane of people. Terrifying. Terrifying. Nightmare situation. That man, I mean, that's really terrifying. Um, And he lost his life. I mean, basically, you know, he's going to be charged with attempted murder for 80 people. Yeah, like it's over for him for sure thank god he didn't actually crash the plane or everybody's life would have been over um what like you were just talking about ptsd things that you would do for ptsd before mushrooms what are those things so you know when i looked at your brain it has a ptsd powder it's very busy i looked at your brain and it has what we call the diamond pattern where your emotional brain is actually really busy. Um, And so what would I do? Um, And you told me your dad was, had struggled with alcohol. So I assume there's there's some trauma there in the past. But but growing up, he wasn't drinking. Growing up, no one drank in the house. So there was no... So there was no unpredictability and... I mean, there wasn't like, you know, I, I'm so like, I'm like, we weren't beat. We weren't molested. You know, I'm from that. Like we were, we were fed. We were, you know, I, oh God, I feel like I can't really like talk shit on my parents. They did the best they could. I think that um, reach kids was a lot, but we always had, you know, um, I don't, I don't, we always had a meal on the table and everything, but, you know, I think there was like some depression issues like with my dad and, there was something that happened in fourth grade. This is really, and it was totally out of my parents' control, but my brother, this is when I had my first panic attack. My brother was just born. I was nine when he was born and he was born with a like kidney malfunction and he was very little. And my mom, he had to have this crazy surgery and my mom had to leave us for a month and live in Montefiore hospital with him for a month. And I was very close with my mom and she was gone, you know? So I felt very unsafe, even though my dad was safe, but like, he wasn't my mom, you know? And I had my first panic attack at school in the stairwell and fainted and never knew what it was. And everything changed after that, this one situation, you know? Um, I don't know if that, but that's not like trauma, you know? That's, I mean, I took it maybe as that, but you know, well, it's close to abandonment, even though there wasn't a choice, right? But you, your nervous system has this special routine that's going, that's your routine. And then all of a sudden, there is a trauma in your family. Yeah. And children, I mean, that's clearly a trauma yeah. in your family, right? When you have a sibling that's brand new, that's sick, that your mom leaves. So, you know, I think if we look at it from an adult perspective and look at what a nine-year-old might be 
going through, there's a lot of stress and your body displayed it, right? And so if that gets stuck in your nervous system, um, have you done EMDR? I was doing, I did do EMDR um, with a, a psychiatrist uh, last year. Um, but I don't know. I didn't, I don't, yeah, it helped like, but it was more just the things in my hand. Like when I would start getting like very upset, you know, and just start crying, she would like give me the buzzers like that would like help, but I didn't do any of like the eyes. I did like hypnotherapy. I mean, I've done a lot of stuff. I'd, I'd love hypnotherapy. Yeah. I like EMDR when it's done in a pretty structured way, like write down your top 10 traumas. And then, I mean, it can either be tactile. I like eye movement, you know, it's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, so I like that. And when they did that, did it take you back to the early traumas and then work through them? So it's the eye movement or the tactile stimulation, the bilateral hemisphere stimulation that when you bring up the original traumas and then you process it with the bilateral stimulation, they then tend to dissipate. Hmm. And so, I don't know, of course, could be for a single incident trauma, could be two sessions, you know, like you're in a car accident and you don't want to get back in a car. But if there's a bunch of them, it's true for most of my patients, then, you know, it takes 20, 30 times. But it, I, I like it in a structured way. That's how I was taught to do it. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think also, you know, it's kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg, because then it's like, well, when you get into like drugs at a young age, you know, there's bad things happen. I mean, just, and you just end up with the wrong people and, you know, all of that. So of course there's things that happened, you know, when I was a teenager that I've kind of been like, okay, well that happened. Cause I was like using drugs and, you know, I've, and I probably need to like, you know, think about that more and work through that more, but yeah. And I'm going to do that. <laughs> but, it's, but it still happened. Right. I mean, yes, you could blame yourself right. and then discount it, but it still lives in your nervous system. It's and really if, if you could look at it from a loving parent's perspective or a loving teacher's perspective or a loving coach's perspective, my patients, you so often they're just mean to themselves and how they think, how they talk to themselves. I'm like, you know, if you talk to your children like that, CPS would show up um, yes. or you wouldn't have any friends. And so, you know, good coaches notice what you do right. And they teach you when you could do better. Yeah. Bad coaches notice what you do wrong and never let you forget it. And too many people are walking around with this bad parent or bad coach in their head. And I love teaching people to discipline their minds to help them rather than to hurt them yeah it's funny you say that because like you know i'm a public 
person and I was on a TV, you know, reality show and whatnot. And so, you know, I, I had to kind of get used to people saying really horrible things to me online and whatever, but it's funny because I was thinking to myself the other day, the way that I can talk to myself and, and like the way I like, am so mean to myself is worse than what anyone could ever say to me. Like, it's like, I've already said all those things to myself. Like there's nothing you can't say like that. I haven't thought about myself. I think I'm like definitely not doing that as much anymore, but yeah, I definitely beat myself up and I don't know if it's more like, I don't know. It's not a woman. I mean, I'm sure men do it also. I just am a woman. So I'm like, Oh, it's like, it's a woman thing, but, um, no, it's everybody, but women have twice the amount of depression as men actually wrote a book on the female brain, unleash the power of the female brain and argued in the brain, in the book that women make better leaders than men because they're more communicative, more collaborative. Their intuition is often stronger. They go to jail 14 times less than males. Um, but their emotional brains work much harder, which increase their risk of depression. And so I think, and that's why I'm so grateful you had me on your podcast, is teaching girls and boys, men and women, to discipline their minds and love their brains is clearly the way out as I see it. So you want to have a healthy brain because with a healthy brain, everything in your life is easier. But then think of it like hardware and software on a computer. Once you get the hardware tuned up, you then got to program it, mm. right? And from an early age, I have another book I wrote called Captain Snout and the Superpower Kids. It's about how to teach kids not to believe every stupid thing you think. And so whenever you feel sad or mad or nervous or out of control, write down what you're thinking. And then just ask yourself if it's true. Is it absolutely true? And there's a whole process. Um, I teach my patients, uh, in part comes from Byron Katie's work, and it's so powerful um, to just discipline your mind. So if I think nobody... I'm sorry. How do you discipline your mind? Well, so what I, if you came and saw me, I go, I want you to write down a hundred of your worst thoughts. And then I'd give you a process on how to manage them. Write them down. Hmm. Like what's your worst thought that you want to share in public? Um, I'm that I'm going to end up homeless. Okay. So that's a very common thought and so the process is five questions so that's a panic attack thought that's a thought that will drive a lot of trouble so the question is is that true you're going to end up homeless second question is it absolutely true with a hundred percent certainty you know you're going to end up homeless and you already said no so that one's no the third question has three parts how does that thought make you feel terrified terrified how does that thought make you act oh desperate panicked what's the outcome of having that thought 
um, doing things I probably, I don't know, just acting out of suffering, suffering. suffering. Yeah. Suffering. It's a suffering thought. Yeah. So question four is how would you feel if you didn't have the thought, if you couldn't have that thought? Um, I would feel great. I would probably get so much more done because I wouldn't be fucking worrying about shit that's not even going to happen. I mean, the thing is, I know. Like, Hang on. See, I, you have to discipline your mind, which means you have to do the process. Mm -hmm. And you have to do it enough so that it becomes subconscious. So how would you act if you didn't have the thought? I'd probably be a calmer person yeah because you're terrified yeah for no yeah. good reason when you and i were 17 we could live on our own and figure it out e even with your addiction you probably could and now you're older you're more experienced you have more resources all yeah. of those things right what's the outcome of not believing that horrible thought the outcome would be me probably just being a happier individual and like being more productive and not wasting brain space on something like that really right and question five is my favorite question so you take the original thought that's bothering you i'm gonna be homeless and you flip it to the opposite and you go, okay, so the opposite is I'm not going to be homeless. Do you have any evidence where the opposite of the thought that's bothering you is true? Yeah, I mean, I live in a very nice home, you know. Okay, so you're not homeless. Not homeless. And also I could always just move in with my mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> And then what you do is you meditate on the opposite of the thought that's bothering you. But, and in all your addiction treatment, see, I, I think, one, look at your brain and then get it as healthy as it can be. Two, program. And in my book, Your Brain is Always Listening, I rewrote the 12-step program. No one. Because no one... Because it hasn't been rewritten in 85 years. Yeah. And, and I'm like, this thing's outdated. Now, no disrespect. And a lot of my patients um, get great benefit from the 12 steps. Yeah. But there's no brain in the 12 steps. And there's no discipline in your mind in the 12 steps. So step number one, see, I think the 12 steps step number one should be step number two step number one is what do you want mm. what do you want in your relationships in your work in your money in your physical emotional spiritual health what do you want that's step one and then step two is your life's out of control because the substances are stealing what you want See, then it just becomes so clear. And step three is assess and optimize the physical functioning of your brain. 
And step four is know your brain type because all addicts are different. You would have been a compulsive addict. They're impulsive addicts, compulsive addicts, sad addicts, anxious addicts. Um, they're just different types. Um, and then kill the ants, the automatic negative thoughts that steal your happiness because they drive addiction. And so, so you still have a bit of an ant infestation. It's like ants. So I want you to go online and get an anteater, like a little stuffed anteater and put it by your bed and just look at it and get Captain Snout for your daughter. (laughs) um, Because you're less likely to use when you don't have an ant infestation. And, you know, some people have the ants the size of New York City. There's just so many. And other people, it's more like used to live in Barstow in between um, Los Angeles and Las Vegas, like 10,000 people. So it's too hot to have ants there. Um, how do you come up with this stuff? Like, how, do you, how did you do this? How did you, like, come up with all of these amazing ideas i don't even understand because your mind's not busy with ants so it's thinking about other stuff it used to be and then i found that getting rid of the ants was incredibly helpful for me and i love teaching and sharing the things i learned that helped me like when i first scanned my brain in 1991 i'm like well that's not healthy (laughs) and so i think everything i've done in the last 32 years is get my brain healthy and then I can help you. And then that makes me feel like my life matters. Um, If you could only prescribe like three supplements for someone to take every day for like brain health, what would they be? Multiple vitamin, because we live in a vitamin deficient society, omega-3 fatty acids, and then extra vitamin D. Interesting. And then I would add a probiotic. And then I would want to know your brain type. And so for you, you're probably a th- combination of three, four, and five. And so probably saffron and 5-HTP would be extra to just sort of settle things down in your brain. I'm like running to Whole Foods after this and I'm getting all of that. I actually just started taking L-theanine, but is that even like, I, when I, I first got sober, a doctor told me to take that and he gave me also, and this is in 2009, L-theanine and high, high doses of vitamin D. Very yeah, no, I, I, like, I like L-theanine. So if people go to brainhealthassessment.com, brain health assessment, it's my brain type test, then it'll go of the 16 brain types, one of I, and then um, we'll give them recommendations for what supplements might be helpful. That's amazing. I didn't even know about that. That's wonderful. And you came to the clinic. You was totally sort of I I know, I know. I'm really bad about taking vitamins. I'm bad about taking my antidepressants. Like yesterday I thought, 
I forgot to take them. So I think I took double the dose. So I had lots of energy today. You know, it's like really like, I don't, you know, I'm not the best with taking, I need to be a little more on top of it. Like if I have the little pill bottle that sometimes I get, or the little, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but I forget sometimes. Um, yeah. And I don't even know if the antidepressants are really doing anything. I mean, you, I mean, you talk about, um, serotonin and how like, um, well, there was just a study, right. Uh, and I don't know if you spoke about this or someone else did, but there was a study that was saying that like, we, we thought depression had to do with serotonin, but maybe it, but it doesn't now. So I'm like, everyone's on SSRIs, but maybe they're not doing anything. I'm on an SNRI, but I was on an SSRI for a long time until it stopped working. Um, but do we know more about why, why don't we know more about because we don't fit the brain. I mean, you, you just think of how insane this is that last year there were 337 million prescriptions for antidepressants. 27% of all doctor visits in the United States, someone's getting a benzo. I mean, this is just a shit show. And we go, oh, depression's low serotonin. Well, not for everybody. It is for some people and give them an SSRI and you change their lives in a positive way. Give it to another person who has sleepy frontal lobes, you disinhibit them and then they do really crazy things. Um, That's scary. My wife actually wrote about it in her book, The Relentless Courage of a Scared Child. She got depressed after having thyroid cancer. Someone gave her um, Prozac and Somebody asked her on a dare to go to Costa Rica and she just went. And then she realized she was not acting in ways that were consistent with who she was because Prozac basically took the break off of her brain and never want someone to take the break off of your brain. So if you have a busy frontal lobes like yours, then an SSRI is probably a good thing you go know, well, why didn't it continue to work because there's so many other factors like nobody taught you to manage your mind and so over time the ants overrode the effectiveness oh. of the antidepressant and people in our society expect a pill to fix them and medicine can be so helpful, but you got to do the programming work as well. Do you think that what kind of like, and I, you see a lot of famous, you know, people and a lot of people think a lot of people want to be famous. And I don't think they understand that. Like it doesn't fix whatever you have going on. Um, it might make things worse or like you could get addicted to it you know i mean you do you probably see that all the time with with well some of my stars think it's potentially lethal and i'm in justin bieber's docuseries seasons and his fame almost was lethal because it wears out the pleasure centers in your brain and it's weird when you go out Every time you go out for people to point at you, to recognize you, to rush you, um, you know, and then, you know, for example, when he went on tour, he, he would feel awful 
after he performed. I mean, it's totally a dopamine dump. And, and then play video games or he had a period where he's involved with drugs um, or, you know, any amount of sex you wanted. All of those things dump dopamine. And when you don't replace dopamine, you feel awful. And so, and you probably, you know, had the experience during your addiction is you weren't using to get high. You were using to stop feeling awful. Yeah. And pe people often don't understand the chemistry of it is you wear out, burn out your pleasure centers. And then you're just trying to get back to normal. You're trying to get back to a regular baseline of not feeling like sh absolute shit, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and there are ways to do that without chronically hurting yourself, right? It's so short-term pain versus long-term pain and long-term pain is staying in the addiction. Yeah, I heard um, this woman once at an AA meeting. Um, this was so long ago, and she was this older woman, and she just said like she prays for an ordinary life, and like I didn't understand that. I was like, that's so boring. Like, why would you want an ordinary life? But like, you know, like as an older person now, I totally understand that <laughs> why you would want that. Um, do you think that? social media is like what is that doing to our brains because I struggle so much with it and with like not wanting to even be on it and have, feeling like it creates such a so many different layers of bad stuff in my life um but I mean wasn't this stuff like designed literally to affect our brains like cocaine does or something like I, I read that once it's absolutely true and if you're not paying for a product, then you are the product. You are being manipulated. Your thoughts are being manipulated. Your buying habits are being manipulated. And uh, we just have to be super careful that Facebook does not have your best interest in mind. They have their stockholders in mind. And if they can make you sad, if they can make you mad, if they can make you want to be obsessed with following people and then them following you, it becomes a toxic level of self-absorption that is just damaging generations of people. And so now, I have 6 million social media followers. So, but, you know, I have a team. My team helps me. We're putting out positive comments. And every time I go live, it's like, Dr. Abrams is a scammer. And I'm like, and then you realize they're bots because you like go to that person and they have no followers. So they're not real. And you see how it's that conflict that keeps people wanting to know, you know, well, why is he a scammer? And I'm like, um, no, you're the real deal. Yeah, it's, um, 
it's a problem for our society. And I think the longer you can delay giving a cell phone to your children, the better they will be. What about TikTok? They're all bad. They're they're all bad. Um, And young boys, seven, eight, nine, ten, are being exposed to hardcore pornography, which is going to wear out the pleasure centers in their brain and going to make normal, reasonably healthy relationships very hard for them. Wait, eight-year-olds are watching pornography? Nine-year-olds? Yes. Because parents are giving them the phone and they're not giving them the proper um, parental controls. Right, they could just like type in like penis and like it com- right, comes right up, anal sex. I mean, you literally see anything. It's, it's like, actually, no, it is, it's it's crazy. Um, yeah, I was thinking my boyfriend might've been messed up because he's like 36 and I'm like, you know what? You are probably screwed up from growing up watching hardcore porn. I won't go into too many details, but he's he's fine. But like, I think about young men and how it is affecting them and how it is affecting relationships. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, I still think people, we, it should exist. And I think that it should be a little more regulated maybe, but. Well, I think it's education and to know, and they have way too much power, way too much control. Um, yeah. You know, the, their senior um, owners can influence elections. And somebody should be worried about that, right? Because nobody elected them. And, you know, they're doing things like censorship uh, that is pretty frustrating. Yeah. I mean, just in terms of like, uh, from like a macro level also, like we lived like the last, decade has been pretty insane i mean covid covid was i know some people like loved covid like some people were like i didn't work and i was spent time with my, my family like i lost my mind like i ended up having a nervous breakdown and went to a mental hospital like you know i was like it was not good for me at all it was not good with people fighting over politics over vaccines people ratting out neighbors who were having people over like i was like terrified it's like a, and i just read a new york times article about it said like you know america's gloomy right now and rightfully so because we're still reeling from covid and the pandemic and the isolation and the shutdown and kids not going to school and now they're behind and i mean i try not to um you know i can really get like very depressed about just the weight of the world and the heaviness and how do you, well, what would you say to someone and I'm the people who are worrying about that, you know, the war, like whatever side you're on, doesn't matter. Just everything. It's always been a shit show. I mean, the economy, everything is. But, but it's Leah, it's always been. I guess when so. I was growing up in the fifties and I went to kindergarten, I had to hide under my desk because we were worried the Soviets were going to nuke us. Wow. And I live in Southern California where we had earthquake drills all the time. And it's like there's always something going on in history. The biggest problem is the they like took the First Amendment and threw it out during COVID. 
That was like if like if I had a different opinion on the vaccine or on hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, the medical board would threaten to take my license away. And that is the first time since I've been a doctor for 40 years that I felt like I couldn't really speak my mind. And and there's been a lot of blowback, thank God, for that. Um, Because the government got an F for the pandemic. They failed big time. And yeah, um, and they hurt people. So we just have to make sure that doesn't happen uh, again. I, I took ivermectin. It's probably not the topic of the podcast, but I'm pretty. I love this. I love this. This is like, yes, like this is important. This is very important. I took ivermectin when I had COVID. I was scared to tell people I took it. They right. were gonna- because even though there are 63 studies showing that it's helpful and but the powers that be whether it's facebook or google or the american medical association go oh there's no science and everyone's supposed to believe them and then google would change its algorithm so if you type it you won't find the studies unless you're really good at at algorithms and it's it's that that's concerning that we just need a different approach. Oh, no, and, I know. it was uh, horrible. I mean, I did get vaccinated. I mean, I was like kind of freaked out and I got vaccinated, even though I kind of wish I didn't get the booster because I swear after the booster is when I also kind of like lost my mind, but whatever. But I had friends that didn't get vaccinated and I totally respected it. The fact that other people couldn't handle other people not getting vaccinated was scary to me. Like, like people were like cutting friends off and I'm like, right. this, this is insane. And that still is going on. And it's insane because if you didn't get vaccinated and the person you're with did, well, it's on you. You're taking the risk. Because but the vaccinated um, posse uh, would start to control other people. My niece, who I t- we talked about, is at UCLA. And they made her get vaccinated. And it's like the pandemic's over. The World Health Organization and the CDC said the pandemic is over. By the way, the vaccines don't work, right? They don't prevent you from getting COVID. They don't prevent you from spreading COVID. Lots of people get hurt with the booster. And Ew. you're making her get the It's like... It's control, and we should worry about that because we should have control over our own bodies. And I mean, I'd have helped her change schools because, um, with you know, UCLA was her dream and uh, craziness. Anyways, yeah, no, no, well, I'm actually, I'm. We're going to wrap it up. But now that you mentioned this, I'm going to bring this up, which me this has to do with what we're talking about. But there was a law passed in New York. Um, I need to find it. It's like the it's law one, two point three. I'm probably screwing it up. But Governor Hochul, bitch, psycho, passed a law that now says that they can quarantine people with no due process if another pandemic happens. 
like, and all the, you know, a lot of attorneys and stuff are like, really like kind of trying to speak out, but the, the news isn't covering it. It's only like, you know, kind of like small news organizations and like medium, you know, people are writing about it, but it's kind of, you know, it's kind of terrifying. So Florida, here I come. That, that should be <laughs> terrifying because why would they take away due process unless it was a fascist government? It's like, that's not the America that I fought for, right? I'm a veteran. I spent 10 years in the army and uh, I fought for the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and to take away those freedoms for something that clearly doesn't work, right? Yeah. America has... Well, we have 4% of the world's population and we had 16% of the world's COVID deaths. And so to go back to policies that were clearly hurtful mm. is just wrong, which, you know, makes me want to vote for Bobby Kennedy Jr. But um, that's a different story. Um, I just you know, we're based on our constitution and for people, for governors to start saying, well, we can take away your constitutional rights because we know better and we're in bed with Pfizer. No, that's just not Terrible. okay. with. Ter absolutely terrifying. Um, I never want another vaccine again. Call me anti-vax. I don't fucking care. Um, are you which, doing... Which might not be the, the best thing for you. Well, if I go right. to you know, if I go yes. to another country and I need a malaria thing or something, yes, of course. But I'm not doing another COVID vaccine ever again. I have friends that have gotten six of them. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? Your best defense is your immune system. And I said that from the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. Is your best defense against COVID is your immune system. So the fact that you're taking higher levels of vitamin D. People had low levels of vitamin D died from COVID. But did you hear Fauci go, everybody should have their vitamin D level checked. Everybody probably should be taking more. Don't isolate, get out in the sun because the isolation makes you afraid, makes you sad. So we could go on and on. We could but go on and on. We're on the same page. I, we're on the same page for sure. And I don't, you know, I'm I'm glad that we're talking about it actually, because we need to be. And I think a lot of people now, finally, and people obviously were thinking that back then, but now studies are coming out that the masks don't really work and the vaccines don't really work. And, you know, and I hope that people question the government and question all these rules because um, we are kind of headed down a slippery slope and it's the same thing um, with with abortion and people trying to take a woman's right to choose away and someone just had to go to a, in front of a judge in Texas to ask if she could please get an abortion. I mean, it's, it's horrible, but no ants. I'm getting rid of my ants. I'm getting, I'm going to get my ant eater, you know. Um, Dr. Amen, thank you so much for coming on. You are truly just doing such important work. And I just want to thank you so much. One last brief question. I just remember this. Um, do you think that the, you know, mental health is like, we're finally talking about it. Like there's less of a stigma. It's still there, but are we having the right conversation? Like, are we having the right public conversation like about mental health slash brain health? No. 
we need to get rid of the word mental. Um, after looking at 250,000 brains over the last 32 years, most psychiatric problems are not mental health issues. They're brain health issues. Get your brain healthy and your mind will follow. So the mission of my life is to end the concept of mental illness and create a revolution in brain health. Because if you love your brain, you then eat right for it. You then think right for it. You do the right things for it. Okay, well, I want to help you with the revolution. So <laughs> please come back on the podcast. Um, and I hope I can, when I'm in California, we can do this in person again. And um, I would love that. Thank, Thank you, you. So much, Dr. Amen. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.